Hello everyone, we're getting close. That would be closer to the first round deadline for applications at Harvard Business School, which is September 8th, two weeks away from the publication of this podcast, which we're recording a few days early. So we want to kind of devote this podcast on Business Casual to what you should be thinking about if you're going to apply in that first round, or after all, the Harvard Business School first round tends to be the official kickoff of the new admission season, really across the world. So I'm here with my co-host again, Maria Wickvilla, the founder of Applicant Lab, and Caroline D'Arty Edwards, the co-founder of Fortuna Admissions and the former director of admissions at NCOD. Okay, so let's just start with this, if you don't mind, because you are the you two are the experts. I'm just the foil yeah. to yeah. this discussion. You're too modest, John. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say you are 75% there on your Harvard Business School application that is due in two weeks. What should you be doing right now? to make sure you submit your best application. And if you are not 75% or more there, should the fire alarm be going off and should you be considering already a round two submission? Can we define 75% ready? <laughs> you guys are the experts. <laughs> and then I think I think there's also like when the candidate thinks they're 75% ready and when they're actually 75%. Ah, that's interesting in and of itself. You know what? I'll kick off this one real quick. I will say one thing that is this is important for all business schools but for Harvard in particular. Every business school, in addition to giving you a place to upload your resume and the recommendations and your essay, they also give you a space where you can describe your uh, job, right? So they'll have a box for your key responsibilities with, I think, 200 or 250 characters, uh, a little box for your key accomplishments, and a little box for your key, you know, what is the biggest challenges you faced at work? And then there are similar little boxes to describe your extracurricular activities and whatnot. I think a lot of people... And I know this is true because I did this when I applied and I didn't, <laughs> this is a mistake I made. Uh, a lot of people sort of ignore those little boxes at first and they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. I'll, I'll get to those later, right? I'll, I'll fill those out right before I hit submit. And the thing is, in general, those little boxes, A, take a lot longer to fill out than you expect. Uh, and B, for Harvard in particular, since the essay question is, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically the Harvard essay question is saying, look. We've got your resume. We see the bullet points of the accomplishments. We've read the recommendation. And now we've read these little boxes up top where you've, you've kind of given us the highlights. So what else should we know about you? That's pretty much what the Harvard essay prompt is. And so you can't write a good Harvard essay, what else should we know about you, until you've already filled out those little boxes because you don't want to be redundant. If you tell a story in one of your essays and 80% of the content of the story later on goes into one of those little description boxes, you've actually just wasted the admission reader's time. So for Harvard in particular, it's very important to do those little boxes first Look at that, look at the resume, and then say, okay, really, what else do I need to tell them that's not already captured here? And that should be a starting point for writing your essay. So if you haven't done that yet, please start that right now. <laughs> Plus, you want to make the boxes work for you, right? Well, it's yeah, not just a question of just, okay, uh, blindly answering the query on the application oh, form, yeah. but it's actually using every single section 
of an application to work in your favor. Yeah, I'm being very thoughtful, obviously, about what you put in those. You know, you have 500 characters to describe your career vision. You've got 250 characters to describe your accomplishment. Like you have to, you don't, you don't just want to throw something in there five minutes before the <laughs> the submission deadline. And yikes. So really, how far along should you be to be in a comfortable position to submit that application in two weeks? Well, ideally, you'd be putting the finishing touches at this stage. And it also depends how much time you have on your hands, right? If you're juggling your application with a very demanding day job and perhaps even... Um, you have a you haven't finished the GMATs yet, and if you if you're studying for that, then then it's a lot, right? So, um, I mean, I would say that we work with candidates typically over sort of at least a two to three month period on the, on their application. So at this stage, it's really about sort of looking at the coherence and consistency of the application, making sure that the messages are very clear. As Maria said, you know, just making sure that all of those finer details have been given the, the attention they deserve. And there are a lot of applications where there are uh, you know, free, free form text fields where you have to answer you know, short questions. And as Maria said, you know, those are, are incredibly important. And it's often the case that applicants will dash off the application form itself at, at the last minute or in the last few days and, and spend sort of months poring over their essays. And then, and then the application form is a bit of an afterthought. And that's, that's when mistakes creep in. You know, the application form is, is a place where I would say, you know, mistakes are most commonly made with just, you know, wrongly entering a date or some inconsistency between, you know, your, your career chronology in, in the application form and, and your resume. It's so easy to do that. And, and, when it, and when the information is so familiar to you, it's hard to see it with fresh eyes. So be able to, at this point, sort of take a step back Take a break and then come back to it with fresh eyes. And also, you know, it's great to get someone else to, um, to bring a fresh set of eyes to your application and, and see how it all hangs together. Because there are a lot of different elements. You know, there's the, the application form, the resume, the essays. Also, you know, what are the recommenders saying about you? And does that complement the, the overall presentation? So, you know, taking a step back at this, at this point is really important to see how, you know, what is the picture that you're conveying overall? And, and are the messages coming across very clearly? And at this point, should you already have recommendation letters from your recommenders? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, something that when we work with clients, I mean, that's often the, one of the first things that we, we have them get moving on is, is mobilizing their recommenders. You need to give them plenty of time. So at this stage, hopefully they've already worked on their recommendation letters and you but you should be you know in regular touch with them to make sure that they're on track and they're not going to miss the deadline especially at a time like this you know this time of year people may be taking some family vacation you know I I can't tell you how many times I fielded calls when I was admissions director from panicked candidates at deadline time you know whether it's this time of year or around the, the the Christmas holidays and, you know, they, they suddenly realize their, their recommender is out for two weeks in a ski chalet or something and they can't oh get a hold of them. Oh, wow. And, you know, so you, so you need to anticipate that and just, uh, you know, be on top of them as well without being a pest, of course. Now, here's a curious question. How many or what percentage, that is, of recommenders do you think actually show the recommendation letter to the candidate before they submit it to the school? Hmm. 80%. 80%. If I just to pull a number, I, 
75, 80%. At yeah. least wow. maybe not the whole thing, but the, I think most recommenders show at least part of it. Yeah. Because if, you, if, you're, if you're writing a recommendation for someone and you're taking time out of your day because you really believe in this young person and you want to see them succeed, like, why wouldn't you run it past them and say, hey, like, what do you think? Like, I don't want to accidentally, you know, shoot you in the foot. So here's, here's my stuff. I think, I think most, most recommenders do. Yeah. Because of course, one of the big things that people look for when they examine a file is an inconsistency between the recommender and the story being told by the candidate. Yeah. Yeah. That consistency is very important. Yeah. And that, and that jumps out at like a red flag immediately when a candidate is saying something that's in conflict with what a recommender said, even if what the recommender said is somewhat positive, right? Yes. And, and I mean, an issue that I've seen a lot as well is, you know, recommendations where the recommender just hasn't fully understood what is expected of them and doesn't give enough detail. And, you know, it's just too high level. And then it's not terribly useful to the file reader. They, they need some substantiation of the points being made. And it's not uncommon that when when clients come to us because they've been dinged and they want a sort of, you know, diagnosis of what happened and they share their full application and, you know, maybe what they have written is fantastic. But then they get hold of their recommenders and the recommenders were well-meaning but didn't fully understand what was expected and, and just haven't given that level of detail and insight that the, that the schools really need. And it's such a shame when... When, when the application is let down like that. Now, do either of you have a standard checklist? Like, before you hit submit, do this. Well, I mean, it, it's sort of an ongoing process. And, and you know, we have clients check, uh, you know, and proofread, you know, all of the elements well ahead of the time. So, you know, hopefully they're not in a mad panic at the last minute. And, and there's a lot of things that they need to do, is including... Things like, you know, checking their internet footprint and t checking their social media, because it may well be that the admissions file reader will Google them. And, you know, if they haven't, they need to review their privacy settings on their accounts because, you know, you don't necessarily want the file reader to re be able to see all of your your posts of, you know, you, you out partying or, you know, I also had a, a client who was a prolific blogger and had posted a blog about, you know, the bad relationship she had with her boss and, you don't necessarily want the file, the file no. stumbling upon things like that. So. Or in this day and age, you don't want to be seen partying without a mask on or yeah. social distancing, right. right? Yes. I mean, seriously, because it reflects yeah. on your maturity and your responsibility. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So it could be simple things like that. Yes, absolutely. Now, Maria, I can't imagine that on Applicant Lab, you don't have a video under the title before you hit the submit button. So actually, I'm sitting here and I'm like, oh my God, I need to make a video with a title. <laughs> <laughs> um, you will by tomorrow. Yeah, I'm going to, exactly. By the time this comes out, I will. No, I mean, look, I, I definitely have a, to, a, a pretty comprehensive to-do list module where you can, you know, I, I start off with like very simple things like request your transcripts because you don't want that to be the thing that it's the day before the deadline and your transcript still hasn't you know i have right. i have little things things for you to do great and small you know from from simple things like that to much more strategic things and so i already have like an overall an overall list of things to do and so my hope would be that if you follow all of those things you wouldn't then also need a final checklist but now i'm like oh maybe i should make one just in case <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I break out, I have a section where I do break out 
the most common application form fields. And I sort of give my opinions on, well, you know, here's some strategy, you know, for example, don't just copy and paste the bullet points from the resume into the job description box, right? That's just lazy. The format, first of all, the formatting is not going to work frequently. Those little boxes don't allow you to have bullets and formatting. It also just demonstrates a certain level of laziness. If you just, you know, copy and paste it, like, come on, you really want to come here? Put, show me some love, put in a little (laughs) extra effort. So yeah, so I have, I have a ton of information, but not that specific information, but I will no. <laughs> okay, we and we and we know that Harvard and many other schools have said because of the pandemic, it's okay to submit your application without a GMAT or a GRE score. Uh, you can submit it later. Um, at this point, if you're going going to apply to Harvard, should you have already a scheduled test date? Ideally, yes. Right, because also. In an ideal world, you'd like to give yourself a chance to take it a second time if you can. Now, the GMAT online test, you can't take a second time. The GRE, you can. But there are some test centers open here and there, and you could probably find one, even if you had to drive to it or fly to it, as some people are doing, to take it a second time. But, yeah, so you would say, please, at least have it scheduled (laughs) at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. you can okay. communicate that in your application. You can say, you know, I don't have it right now, but I'm going to retake it. Or I do have a score, but I, I'm not happy with it. So I am going to retake on October 3rd or whatever the date is to give them a heads up. Yeah, good idea. Here's another question. It's generally believed that people who apply in round one or apply early, uh, because some people have early decision rounds, are among uh, the more competitive, more ambitious, more prepared Applicants, they are the early bird hoping to catch the worm. Is that is that true? Because I'm also imagining that in any round one, you're still going to get people who probably aren't ideal candidates who are throwing a Hail Mary pass and just seeing what's happened. Yep. I mean, I, I think certainly in the final round, the quality is much more variable, but I'm not sure there's a huge difference between quality in round one and round two. Right. Especially now when you know, so much is disrupted. And so a candidate who might have applied in round one for whatever reason, you know, isn't ready to submit right now and will therefore submit in round two. So, so you know, I, I think quality is, is going to be pretty consistent across round one and round two. What, what do you think, Maria? Yeah, I, actually, I, I agree in terms of quality, but I was just going to ask you, Caroline, do you see a difference in terms of industry? Like, for example, I tend to see you know, I like to joke that the the kids who work for McKinsey, they've been preparing their HBS applications since they were eight years old. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> and so, they have. Uh, they really, they really have. It's it's really kind I of- I hear from kids, you know, who, I mean, this was a dream that really started in high school for many of them. I mean, okay, great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't. I, I feel a little uncomfortable with people who have their li- who think or who think they can plan their lives out so uh, so down to the down to the every you know every minute <laughs> for the rest of their lives is planned out. But so yeah, I, I tend to find I don't know that the quality is any different, but I do tend to find that the management consultants, the investment bankers, the overrepresented groups do tend to come in in round one, and then I think it's become almost like a self fulfilling prophecy where because certain groups are overrepresented and because certain groups are preparing and they've got MBA on the mind for years in advance, they tend to apply in round one. So now the other people in those groups who might not have applied in round one are like, well, shoot, if everyone else from McKinsey is applying in round one, maybe I should apply too, because then I don't want to be, you know, I don't want all the McKinsey 
consulting spots to, you know, I, I don't want to be last in line compared to my peers and my competitive cohort. So I was actually going to ask you, Caroline, if you saw, because I tend to see the, yeah, I the agree. early, those, those industries. Yeah. Those, they tend to be the early bird industries. Yes. Where they know um, it's sort of part of their career track. And, and so they've had plenty of time, you know, in often years to, to, to plan their, their, their timing and their plan of attack for applying to business school. And, and a lot of candidates at this point, you know, they're applying to the very top schools, you know, typically Harvard, Stanford, Wharton in round one to see where they stand with those schools before looking further uh, and, and applying to further schools in, in round two. So often those candidates really want to be sure of, of hitting up those schools in round one, so they know whether they need to work on additional applications or not. Right. Now, the other inevitable question is uh, this one. Let's say you do apply to Harvard. Inevitably, you're going to apply elsewhere. How do you leverage all the work you've put into one application into numerous applications and do it in a way that doesn't diminish your chances at your other target schools? Hmm. I think it depends on the portfolio of schools that you're applying to, because some schools there's there's a relatively I don't want to call it easy overlap because that's sort of that's making it sound like it's much less effort than it is. But, you know, most schools, not all, but most of them do ask like, hey, why do you want to what do you want to do with your career and how can our program help you? A lot of schools ask a variation of that. So as long as you have the fundamental story of where I want to go, why I need an MBA, you know, you're going to want to be careful that you don't accidentally put a class, you know, you don't want to mention one global program that has a certain name for one school in another school's <laughs> essay. Uh, but you can, you know, at the risk of, of sounding flippant, you can sort of swap out several course names. And as long as you've been talking to some students from different schools, um, so that way maybe you can provide some sort of slightly unique insight per school, that that is work that tends to be easily recyclable. And also I find that leadership stories tend to be very easily recyclable between the Stanford essay, like the Stanford now, now, I mean, like as of a year ago, they they offered the ability to write up to three optional leadership stories. So I personally find that those leadership stories overlap very well with Harvard. So when Mm. someone's like, I've started on my Harvard application and this is such, because the Harvard essay is so open-ended, I think every admissions consultant has a different approach and different, but for me, it's all about leadership for the Harvard essay. So if someone started with the Harvard essay and they are writing it about their top leadership examples, then boom, you've already got, you know, at a minimum, you've, you've got a foundation for the Stanford optional essays. You've got a foundation for the Kellogg leaders who create lasting value essay. You know what I mean? Like once you start to it, it really depends on the on the schools. But at the core, if you have a YMBA career vision and at least one good leadership story, you're good to go. One leadership story, maybe like one mentorship story, uh, then you're pretty much good to go for a number of, of schools, I think, off the top mm. of my head. Yeah, I, I agree. There's a lot of heavy lifting that goes into the first application. And, you know, during that process, you should have figured out, you know, how you want to position your candidacy and what are the what are the key messages you want to get across? What are the key strengths that you want to convey? What are the concerns the school might have about your profile? And how can you be proactive in mitigating those? And those may well be common across schools. So once you've done a really good job at one application, you've got a fantastic foundation that you can then leverage for, for additional schools. Yeah, all good points. And good luck to everyone out there. That's what I got to say. And I'm sure... Um... You know, it's sort of an anxious time when you uh, get ready to hit that submit button. 
but it should be a relief as well, I would think, given all the work that you have put into the early applications. And I would think one good practice instead of cutting and pasting (laughs) is print out your essay and then write originally. Don't be cutting and pasting because that's when you start to make mistakes. And the one school that you apply to is going to find out about the other school you apply to, Mm. which I'm sure both of you have seen. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to, if you're going to do that, you have to be very eagle-eyed and not make silly missteps. Yeah. And (laughs) and if you don't cut and paste, it's much harder to, to screw up like that. Right. Correct. All right. So last week, we talked about uh, Wharton's decision to go fully online and the controversy that that created with their student body. And we cited a survey that was done of the second year students, which is pretty devastating. And, and I think we, we came to the conclusion rightfully that there's too much whining going on. But what's happened since then is it's become clear that schools are going to have a much more difficult time than they ever imagined going hybrid bowing to the reality of the raging pandemic, which doesn't seem to be under control in the United States at all, more schools are deciding to go with a fully online format and abandon the carefully laid plans they made for a more blended combination of in-person classes and online learning. So right now we have uh, USC, Marshall School, Michigan State, Uh, UNC at Chapel Hill, Wharton, of course, Georgetown, Berkeley, uh, all going fully online. And Stanford making an announcement that they're inching closer to it. They will decide on August 24th, which is actually the day after our uh, after this podcast goes live. So I'm I'm guessing that they're going to go fully online because right now uh, the county that they're in, Santa Clara, actually doesn't allow for gatherings uh, yeah. the size of which would allow them to have in-person classes. So I'm wondering if the two of you are coming to the conclusion that basically, you know, the pandemic of this of the academic spring is going to become the pandemic fall. What do you think? It's a very difficult situation. And I think, you know, schools that do go back, you know, they're, that there, there's really a risk of outbreaks, weather outbreaks, and then having to go back fully online. It's going to be switching back and forth. So, yeah, it's really not under control in the U.S. at all. It's a, it's a huge issue across the education in, uh, industry, not just for business schools, obviously. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think what you're seeing, too, is that, you know, the schools that have already tried to go back, are having some problems with it. And I think the good example would be UNC at Chapel Hill. Now, this relates to their undergraduate student body, not their graduate students. But in the first week of classes, uh, at least 135 students tested positive for the coronavirus. There were uh, six outbreaks or clusters. They define a cluster as five or more cases testing positive uh, in five days. Uh, There were, and some of these can be traced to parties and frat houses and parties and other homes that were rented by uh, students. It it seems like, you know, there are not still not enough people even behaving properly uh, during this pandemic. 
Harvard issued a statement basically saying, look, we know we sound like a parent, but none of this is going to work unless we have a true partnership of transparency and honesty where we can rely on you to follow the rules. And I think that the, the other question here is, can graduate students follow rules better than undergraduates? Now, we know MBA students at these very elite schools and elsewhere, you know, hey, they're a fun bunch and they're a social bunch. So I wonder if, in fact, uh, a masked and socially distant group of students might find the need to connect more important than the need to play it safe. What do you two think? Both of you have MBAs. Both of you had that experience. Yeah. It is social. It is. You know, it's more important as part of the business school experience than any other graduate school, right? The, the networking right. and that, uh, the, those connections. So the, the schools are doing what they can, right? And it's a very uncertain environment and perhaps things will get better. Perhaps we'll have a vaccine in a few months and, and things can progressively improve. But I, I think the fall period is going to be very tough. But there's a lot, I mean, as we've discussed, there's a lot that you can do online to connect. One of my daughters just started a new school, a high school, and they've been doing a lot of online sessions to, to get to know other students because, you know, she doesn't know her classmates. And there have been some excellent, excellent um, activities and, and, you know, she has started to create some bonds. So I, I, I do think it is feasible to start to build relationships. You've just, you've just got to make the best of it and, 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 you know, schools have had some time to plan for this. In the spring, it was all such a scramble and very haphazard. And, and now things are much better organized. So, uh, you know, I think the experience of students will be much better in the fall than it was in the spring. Yes, it certainly should be. I, and I think the expectations will be that it should be better. And, and, and I think people will be less patient if it isn't. The other issue is, look, you know, when you think hybrid, you think kind of, you know, in your mind, half and half, right? But there's no school that's even going to go hybrid or hoping to go hybrid that's thinking that half of their classes are going to be in person and half are online. At Yale, for example, they're already saying, you know, first-year students, maybe 25% of their classes will be online. Meantime, you can't even get into the building unless you have a scheduled class, and the classes will only be two days a week. So, you know, even going to a fully online format at this point, frankly, you're not losing a whole lot. And if you gain the safety and the health of your fellow students, the faculty, the staff, the poor staff, incidentally, who cleaning the, 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 the classrooms, cleaning the hallways, and doing the kinds of work where they have to kind of show up no matter what, I think that's a small price to pay. Yeah really is. All right. Well, good luck to all of you who are starting school, whether it's online or whether it's in person or in between. And good luck to all of you out there who are ready to hit the submit button, not only at the Harvard Business School, which after all is only a small percentage of all the MBA applicants out there, but everywhere else. We're rooting for you. We hope you get your wish we hope your dream comes true and stay safe and healthy. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants with my friends, Maria and Caroline. Thank you so much again.